Hello, comrades and friends. We're here in the Shadow Rockford Tower behind enemy lines, working to undermine the Delaware way for working people. Uh, this is your Highlands Bunker podcast. Um, there's a lot of exciting political news around these parts, um, and I hope we can get into some of that freewheeling uh, political chat a little bit later. But first things first, uh, in the bunker tonight is veteran comrade Jordan Howell. Hello. And uh, super producer, super student, super campaign organizer, uh, Carl on the knobs. And on the phone is the editor and publisher of Current Affairs magazine, uh, the author of many books, uh, including Trump Anatomy of a Monstrosity, Super Predator Bill Clinton, uh, Bill Clinton's Use and Abuse of Black Americans, and his newest book, uh, Why You Should Be a Socialist. Uh, I'm just delighted to have Nathan J. Robinson. Oh, thanks. Delighted to be with you. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's super. I'm uh, you know, we, we've we've just sort of branched out into some sort of leftist thinkers, intellectuals, and and um, and, and authors, and uh, you know, your your book's hitting, and this is right in our wheelhouse. Actually, this is our cool. stuff. Well, our honored stuff. to be among them. <laughs> well, I, I guess we'll start um, where all of these sort of discussions seem to start, uh, which is sort of defining terms. Uh, because that actually usually takes about two thirds of, yeah. of the space of the book, or or whatever. Because um, you know, the the thing I get into mostly is is two tracks on this. Yeah. Um, either people getting bogged down in the sort of social democrat, democratic socialist sort of mess, mm-hmm. uh, or um, sort of the uh, the authoritarian sort of Venezuela Soviet Union problem. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm interested in your take on both of those, but in general, um, yeah. how do you, how do you go about defining the terms before you start? Well, I, uh, <laughs> you know, it's funny because I, I say in the book that I hate this whole definitional problem because one of the problems is that it's irresolvable because we're, so we're talking about the word socialism, right? And what does socialism mean? And the, the reason that that's a difficult question, the reason it causes all kinds of problems, is that socialists disagree. And you have this kind of paradox where every, all of the socialists are socialists, but none of them agree what that means. But it means something, because they are all that thing. Um, so... The sort of question then is, and and the way I kind of start is, well, okay, what do, what do different kinds of socialists mean when they say this term, and what do they have in common? What unites them? What what is it that if you, if you take two people who are disagreeing on what the word socialism means, is there something that both of them do agree on? Um, so I kind of I kind of start there, and I've been doing interviews over the last few months with a bunch of DSA people around the country, and I always ask them, you know, what does socialism mean to you? And the thing is, they do all give you kind of different definitions. So in writing this book, I kind of had to think to myself, well, what what might they all agree to? And so I start at a very very simple level, and I say, well, one thing that all socialists seem to have in common is a real intense sense of outrage at the distribution of power and wealth in society. Um, I think every socialist in history has always begun with this kind of very strong discontent. This very so, regardless of what they prescribe, you know, there are anarchist socialists and there are Stalinist socialists. There are people who believe in strong government control and no government control. So it's not really about government, but they do, do all begin with this sense that. Um, that power is distributed to the to the wrong people. And so I start with this kind of socialist way of looking at the world and describing sort of how things look through socialist eyes. And and I think that is that is that, that sort of does talk, you know Terry Eagleton has this great definition where he says a socialist is someone who has never been able to get over the fact that he says something like that most people who have ever lived have lived lives of sort of unremitting toil. Um, and I think that kind of refusal to get over injustice is something that nearly all people who use this label do have in common, regardless of where they come down on how exactly we should readjust the economy in order to fix that. Yeah, I, I love uh, the, the way that you start that because I've, I've seen you uh, write similar uh similar sort of things because it begins at, at a place of like ethics 
and sort of how uh, how you view the world and, and just what you see before you start talking about sort of what institutions you would like to see to sort of make those things fairer or make them more just. Um, and so it's, it's, it's sort of easy to explain to someone like, yeah, you know, you see this GoFundMe for somebody's, um, you know, transplant or important medical treatment. And um, your first thought should be like, wow, that's terrible. Like no, no one, yeah. no one, no one should have to do this. This is like the worst thing I've ever seen. And if you could sort of explain that to somebody, then you have a jumping off point to say, okay, well, if you feel like this, that's where we start. Yeah, you know, uh, and it's and it's it it doesn't make socialism meaningless, right? I mean, because there are a lot of people who look at those GoFundMe's and don't notice anything wrong. Uh, and there, are, I don't know if you've seen all these sort of local heartwarming news stories that come out, like you know, the, the this this town got together and bought this disabled kid a, a wheelchair or whatever, and they're all things that like the should have been guaranteed right yeah like it sh shouldn't have been a question yeah a woman a woman walked to work for nine years as a shift like ma right. manager at a right. fast food restaurant they were like oh and we bought her this four thousand dollar car well and, and, yeah, th thanks a lot yeah. that would have been nice 10 years ago actually and, and so it is true that like socialists all look at the world kind of differently and there are people who pass by things like that and don't notice that there's something deeply and troublingly uh, just upsetting about it. Um, and so what they do all have in common before they get into arguments about centralized versus decentralized socialism, anarchism versus Marxism versus what have you, is they all look at that and go, this, this, doesn't, this is not the way it ought to be and this is not the way it needs to be. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think that's, like I said, that, that's a good place to start before you even sort of get into what you prescribe or um, sort of how you would like to set up institutions. Um, the Maybe we'll put to the side some of the objections or some of like the canned tropes, um, sort of the Venezuela problem, whatever you want to call it, um, and just sort of move into, um, I, was, I was reading, a, I guess you had just published it maybe a day or two ago, uh, the the Brett Hines uh, essay, How to Build uh, oh, yeah. Socialist Institutions. Yeah, yeah so I, I, I just read it today, so I, could, I didn't know when it was published. But Yeah, yesterday. Great. Um, he says, uh, talking about this separation now that you've defined terms is uh, the way to separate socialism from other leftist liberal and even social democracy is an emphasis on ownership. Uh, yeah. Sort of who, who owns what and how that is all organized. And I think that's the the key to the discussion of how institutions should be focused. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, we start with this sense of outrage, this sense of real being very disturbed at injustice. Um, but then we move to and we sort of develop this into what I think comes next, which is this very strong sense of solidarity with other people. Socialists talk tons about solidarity, meaning you know, seeing other people as their fates as connected with your own and believing very strongly in their equal rights to your own. You know, Bernie Sanders gave that great speech uh, a couple of weeks ago in New York where he talked about how even if other people, even if you don't have the same problems that other people have, even if you don't have debt, even if you're not an immigrant, you care about and you're willing to fight for them. And so that's sort of what comes next. And it develops into this kind of philosophy of... Uh, autonomy, this belief in people in, that everyone should have equal freedom, that everyone should be able to participate. Uh, there's this radically democratic instinct. Socialism is an anti-elitist instinct. It says that people should govern themselves. They should own, you know, the results of of their labor. Um, they should really have this. The, the, as everyone equally should have a very strong kind of autonomy. And that I I I like discussing those things before we get to the classical socialist idea of worker ownership of the means of production, because that kind of sets it up and explains why that's meaningful. When you hear that term, you might not understand what socialists are so mad about or why that matters so much to them. But w what it is, is that because we have this very strong sense of solidarity with fellow people and, and an identification with their struggles, 
when we look at people who are being exploited and abused in their workplaces, we think, well, that's not right. They should be able to have democratic participation in their workplaces, ownership over the things that they make, ownership over their day and their time and their labor. Yes, and I think a good example of this uh, is something that uh, Heinz brings up, but you've also discussed it too uh, in, I, I know, I, th I think you've talked to the folks that wrote the book about uh, Walmart being basically a communist yeah, sort yeah, of yeah. sort of totalitarian <laughs> thing. And, 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 and Heinz makes the same point, saying you know, the capitalist economy pro proliferates basically private governments. And yes. there's this sort of uh, false notion that well, yes, they're all private, sort of authoritarian, hierarchical uh, uh, organizations, but you have the choice to go here or there. But that, cho yeah. that choice is not really, a, it's not really a choice at all. Right. So there's this wonderful book, Private Government, by Elizabeth Anderson. And, I mean, she sort of develops this, uh, this explanation of the workplace as a kind of thinking about it like we might think about a little country. Um, and if oh, the workplace was a country, what would the government in it be? What would the form of government be? And she says, well, for most of us, it would be a dictatorship uh, because someone at the top gives the rules and you have to do what they say, and it's like it or leave it. Now, of course, as you say, the free market libertarians would say, well, it's not a dictatorship because you can leave. But that doesn't really work uh, uh, for a very obvious reason, which is that if we said that about a country, it wouldn't change the fact that it's a dictatorship either. We could say, well, this isn't a dictatorship because you have the right to flee. Well, that's that doesn't that doesn't alter what the governance structure is. That doesn't alter the question of who makes the rules within this domain. And so what Anderson encourages us to do is look at this domain, the domain of the workplace, where most of us spend, you know, sometimes most of our waking life, um, and look at who makes the rules and who owns and who gets who gets the benefits. Now, that, that other book, uh, People's Republic of Walmart by Lee Phillips and Mikhail Rozorsky, which uh, is excellent, um, looks at, concedes that many, many corporations operate in the same structure of dictatorship, but looks at another really interesting aspect, which is the fact that they are communist dictatorships. Not communist in the sense that there is a real sense of equality, but communist in the sense that there is no internal market and that they have a lot of the features of a planned economy that are supposedly dysfunctional and don't work. And it's kind of a fascinating, very provocative book because it's called People's Republic of Walmart because it talks about the way that Walmart's board of directors operates kind of the way a board of Soviet central planners might operate. They make all the economic decisions and there's not a little internal marketplace within Walmart. And, and they're concerned with something quite different, which is not the political philosophy of freedom within the workplace, but the question of how the organization of existing corporations can, what that can tell us about the possibilities for planned economies. Yes, I think another another gr example of this is something I heard Richard Wolff talk about uh, several mm. times, and I think you've you've mentioned it as well. Uh, if you want to uh, sort of analyze or determine what system and what institutions have been able to alleviate uh, poverty and have sort of some kind of growth within you know w within a particular place, the, the place in the last fifteen years is China. Now yes. you have to take out, you know, uh, certain, you know, human rights and, and sort of justice concerns, sort of from that. But from an economic standpoint and an economic sort of the way you're going to organize your economy and your economic institutions, um, again, I, I think if you're able to separate those two out, you can see uh, some of the central planning you're talking about there as well, which is, you know, on those terms in that context, uh, you know, very effective. Yeah, so there's a thing that uh, free market people do with, with China, because China's a big problem for them, actually, when you analyze it honestly. What they do is they say, oh, well, China was a communist country, and then in the late 70s it began to adopt, quote, market reforms. Now it's a capitalist country with, you know, state control of, um, you know, civil liberties. It's authoritarian capitalism. Um, but... What Richard Wolff and uh, what uh, David Schweikart as well um, uh, do is they say, well, hang on a minute. Let's actually look at how the Chinese economy functions. China has 150,000 state-owned enterprises. 
you know, all of the top Chinese firms, all of the largest, uh, uh, or you know, most of them uh, on the Fortune 500 are state-owned firms. Um, it's a very, very state-driven economic structure. And, and Schweikart argues that actually China is much more properly classified as an example of market socialism because there's so much state ownership of industry and state intervention in the economy. Now, I don't think that's I, I wouldn't classify it that way because I think socialism, as I want to use the term, has a kind of inherently democratic element. And so to talk about an undemocratic country as a socialist country is a little paradoxical. Um, but I, I think the point is very important, which is that it's not a free market country um, at all. And it is a country that has experienced fantastic economic growth, fantastic poverty reduction, uh, much in the same way that, that Bolivia did. Um, and so when you look at the actual characteristics of the countries that have had this, in this incredible kind of growth, they really do make people who advocate pure free markets um, very uncomfortable because it's so clear that these countries depart so much from the model of laissez-faire capitalism that they advocate. Yeah, I mean, and it works in the other direction too, um, and people, this sort of exposes these sort of contradictions because when you look at... Uh, Venezuela as an example, uh, because this is something that you know you're always going to have to face. Uh, you know that's this this are the Venezuela argument, um, and you talk about state ownership, and yes, there there is some state ownership in Venezuela, but there's far more state ownership in a country like France. So when you just look at state ownership, even um, you find yourself sort of you know there's no there's no straight there's there's no easy rule you know hard no. hard rule for anything. No, that's absolutely right. Um, I mean, Venezuela is a case where if you actually, you know, people, all they really, <laughs> it's kind of impressive how much you can get away with just by saying the word Venezuela without actually having to come up with any argument whatsoever or show any understanding of the Venezuelan economy or what has actually happened in the country, right? So they just go, oh, Venezuela, big, you know, collapse, inflation, state, dictator. That's all you say, right? But you don't actually t make a serious argument where you say, okay, well, you know, did the, does the percentage of state ownership of industry have a particular effect on the economy? Nobody cares to actually do the honest examination that you would do if you were really interested in the question, does the thing that we would call socialism, does that affect economies in negative ways? But again, the way that I always respond to the, to the Venezuela thing is socialism to the extent that it is an economic principle and not just an ethic one, uh, is the principle of worker ownership and control. Now, if there is worker ownership and control in Venezuela, then we have a test case of socialism. If there's no worker ownership and control, then we do not have a test case of socialism. And so what we should be, when we're saying, does socialism work, what we should be looking at is the degree of workplace democracy. Which is why in Brett Hines's article he looks at a, you know he looks at co-ops he he looks at various different kinds of more democratic institutional structures as tests of socialism. But if you just look at countries that call themselves socialist, if you just say oh North Korea that's socialist, well you go well how much worker ownership and control is there? How much do we have the principles that socialists are fighting for, namely the autonomy and equality of people? And they go, oh, you don't have any equality at all. Actually, uh, you have a small cast of elites who control everything and get all the benefits. You go, well, that is the very thing socialists are fighting against. If you had a system that was egalitarian, then we would have a test. But the whole point that socialists make is that you have huge problems when you have a tiny cast of elites owning and controlling and reaping the benefits. Yeah, that's the, that's the reason that it, it, the, that part of the argument comes down to sort of an authoritarian versus egalitarian uh, system, and that's that's what I use when you know when I'm sort of diffusing the you know the Soviet Venezuela problem is you know, that that's an authoritarian sort of centralized situation. Plus, there's some other there's some other issues with you know. American involvement in Latin America, as you mentioned, in Bolivia and, and other places. So oh, you, yeah, can't, right, you can't really discount that, you know, you're working against, you know, the, the one biggest empire in the world now. So it's very difficult to really try anything you might want to try in that sense. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I, I, I wanted to uh, get into a little bit of the ownership and sort of the shared 
you know, common control and common ownership uh, sort of issue. Um, I know you uh, and I think you co-wrote it with someone. Uh, yes, this is Rob Larson, who's a yeah. economist at uh, Tacoma Community College. Yeah, and so you talked a little bit about now that we've sort of laid out the foundation, what sort of ownership and control would look like. I know Heinz gave some um, interesting examples because he gives some examples that are completely decentralized and local, um, like North Dakota owning its own bank. Um, you know, municipal internet actually is very successful yeah. in the places where it exists um, and in uh, some urban centers. Um, so yeah, if you could talk a little bit about what the economy would look like, what sort of the concept of ownership is sure. uh, in, in, in the, uh, you know, in the theory. Mm. So ownership is power, right? Ownership is, is the right to decide what happens to some particular piece of property in the world. Um, ownership means, I mean, I own my necktie because I'm the one who gets to decide what happens to this necktie. I can sell it, you know, I can burn it, I can do whatever I like. So that's, so when we think about what ownership is, so when we think about then what worker ownership is, it means that you have that kind of power over the things in your life. You have that kind of power in your workplace. So I happen to work at a cooperative workplace, right? At Current Affairs is a place where we don't have some absentee owner. You can contrast the current affairs business model with, say, Deadspin, right? Deadspin, uh, everyone quit recently because they were owned by a private equity firm. That private equity firm had the power to tell everyone in that for in Deadspin what to do, and if people in Deadspin didn't want to do those things, they, you know, the infamously they told the people at the website, you know, you have to just write about sports. So they didn't want to, so they had to quit because that was their choice because they didn't own their workplace. Whereas here at Current Affairs, we don't have a private equity firm owning us. We're owned by the people who work at Current Affairs. So you still nobody individually, I don't own current affairs. We have to decide things democratically, and that means there are things that I have to um, put up with that I might not like. Or, you know, but it, what it does mean is that the people who are doing the work, the people who are affected by the decisions, are the ones who are, for the most part, making those decisions. And so that that's the kind of difference in ownership structure between a worker-owned thing and a capitalist-owned thing. A capitalist is a person whose contribution is their capital. They put up the stuff that we use to make the things, and then in return they get uh, a profit. And the reason that anti-capitalists are anti-capitalists is that they don't is that they recognize that the only thing the capitalist actually has is a legal power of control over some particular set of things, whether it's money or whether it's stuff. Right? They they have. The capital, because they are legally entitled to, because they own, because ownership is a legal right, but they're not actually doing anything. I mean, if I have a big pile of money, I can, uh, I can le lend it to someone. But the reason I can lend it to someone is is not because I am taking any action. It's because I have legal title to whatever it is I'm lending them. So socialists have always said, well, it's absurd that some people just get to make money because they have legal title to things, and other people actually have to do all the labor of making the magazine or the website. And so we need new ownership structures where the people who actually do the labor reap the benefit. Yes, and I actually want to. That's something uh, Jordan wants to talk about, uh, sort of a little in a little bit larger scheme, and just sort of apply that to sort of leftist publishing uh, and uh, leftist sort of media outlets, independent or cooperative outlets. But before we do that, I I, I have to ask you about uh, another book you wrote because it's sort of applicable to this conversation, I think. Um, so you 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 wrote a memoir of of ah. of the of the ninety year old you. Yes. Um, yes. It's called My Affairs, My, I, my, my Life in the yeah. Magazine Business or something. It's called My Affairs, A Memoir of the Magazine Industry, 2016 to 2076. And as you say, it is written by my 87-year-old self in the year 2076, looking back on how we built the socialist utopia. Yes. And I like I just I, I when I saw you describe it the first time, um, you said, you know, you, it was this idea about how we 
And I, I think you were still, uh, because you attended the DSA conference, I think you were in the, the afterglow of, this, of the camaraderie at the DSA conference because I think you said something like, it was my idea of how we built socialism together. And it was just a beautiful way to put it. Um, but um, <clears throat> you, you used the word utopia, and I guess to sort of close out this sort of segment, what, you know, that's, that's used as sort of like... Um, you know, sort of an uh, an epithet, or I guess a sort yes. of an insult, like oh yeah, like oh you're you you know this could never happen. You know, that's the tragedy of the commons. You know, people are just greedy, and this is just the way it is, sure. and it's stupid. Now, of course, someone won a uh, a Nobel Prize for economics proving that right. that's not true. But other than that, I mean, is that how <laughs> what what what, what yeah. how, how do you uh, formulate that argument when somebody calls you, which you clearly are, and I think it's beautiful, a, a utopist. Yeah, we're taking the term back. Yes, I like it. I reclaim all of this. I love back. Yeah. Reclaiming utopianism. Um, I mean, one of the things that... So, you know, utopia is imagining sort of a perfect or very, very different, at least, society. Um, and I, one of the things I... I my book has... I even have... I have a really, really fun chapter where we imagine various different kinds of ridiculous utopias. Um, and I think, first off, it, it's just an important imaginative exercise because when you try and imagine... Um, what the perfect world would look like. It really helps clarify what your values are and what you, uh, I mean, even if you don't think utopias are possible, you can at least get a better sense of what they would be. That is to say, if we are taking small steps towards progress and we don't think we're ever going to get there, what are we taking small steps towards? What is it? What do we really want out of life? So as a philosophical exercise in sort of coming up with the good life, I think it's very helpful. Um, and then one of the interesting thing that, things that happens when you start to think in utopian terms is that you come to realize that many things we would describe as utopias aren't actually that unrealistic. I mean, at least it's not the case that there are material barriers to the utopia. Uh, George Orwell has this great quote about how the world is a little raft sailing through space and it has adequate provisions for everyone and he says so socialism is actually just basic common sense because all we're thinking about is we've we've we, we, we are human beings who have found ourselves in kind of a garden of eden the world is a very beautiful and well-stocked and well-endowed place you know our natural resources can build such incredible incredible things um you know, the the obstacles to the utopias that we imagine are generally not physical or material they are social obstacles and they are things that people perceive as quote unquote human nature but i think we should cast doubt on some of the assumptions that people have about human nature as you mentioned uh, the idea of the tragedy of the commons was taken to be a f a product of human nature that is to say the tragedy of the commons is that in its classical formulation is that if you have a common grazing patch the different ranchers with their cows will all use too much of the patch and then the and then it will go fallow but eleanor ostrom the first woman to win the nobel prize in economics had the <laughs> she she won the Nobel Prize because she asked a very very simple question that nobody had previously thought to ask, which was well, but does this actually happen? And she actually had the thought to look well, maybe we should look at it empirically, and she did, and she found out oh, no, that's not actually what happens. In fact, human if you want to talk about what human nature does, what people do is they make rules and institutions and there are there's social governance of the commons the reason that the 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 patch of grazing land isn't overgrazed is because all of those ranchers get together and they decide how to make a sort of set of processes that will keep that from happening and that kind of makes sense right because if you don't do that everyone ends up losing and nobody's cows get to eat the grass um so it was pretty obvious that that would be the case, unless you were an economist, in which case it, it was revelatory. Um, but so that's I think that's probably true with a lot of things where actually it turns out that people, for the most part, want to live 
in, in, in harmony and want to live in... I mean, people don't like... You know, people talk about war being the product of human nature, human survival. People don't want wars. Wars are a, a sort of catastrophic deviation from our general desire to live well among one another. And, and, and they're a problem that I think you know, they're sort of an absurdity, and it seems like we should probably be able to fix absurdities. And so I think when you start becoming a utopian, you start to realize you have this funny and kind of paradoxical discovery where you go, hang on a minute, maybe the utopia is the reasonable thing, and all of the things that we're doing currently that fall short of the utopia are actually the things that seem very strange and seem like we should be able to solve them. Yeah, that's 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 so well put because you know the, when you can present uh, something that you know that sort of makes sense. You know, people ask, "Well, how would that work? How how would we do this?" Well, actually, there's many ways, and I can imagine this way. You know, and, and it's actually not that far fetched. Um, it's it's not all that radical. Uh, it's based on you know uh, a set of ethics and and empathy and history and economics even um that would that would tell us that we could um so yeah it's it's a it's a great story and uh, i'm glad that you're at the vanguard of uh sort of telling it and getting it back in the getting it back in the uh well, in, the, in the zeitgeist i guess you would say you know that um uh, that uh, expression it's uh, easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism yes. um i think that's so true Right, in that we, I, you talk to a lot of people today who feel dystopian, right? They feel like the apocalypse uh, is, you know, around the corner and inevitable, and and the idea of conceiving of utopias is very out of fashion, right? People can conceive of dystopias, they can't conceive of utopias, and I think part of breaking out of the prison, that's a sort of intellectual prison of capitalism and of neoliberalism is to dare to imagine a different way that this could end. And it's difficult. It's very hard. I mean, the things that I come up with in my affairs are, are kind of ridiculous in many ways. And the things that I talk about why you should be a socialist are ridiculous. And I'm hoping that people with sort of more literary talent than I have will come up with things that seem more plausible. But... I think it's crucial to sort of exercise our imaginative capacities because progress can only come when we have people who dare to use those imaginative capacities to sort of accept that easier to imagine the end of world than the end of capitalism thing as a challenge and to meet that challenge. Absolutely. And like I, I would like to uh, just segue into as part of meeting that challenge, and I know uh, mm -hmm. Jordan's very uh, excited about this bit of it, uh, because he's trying to do something sort of similar here and mm. and sort of trying to do uh, more long form sort of journalism while he does his other thing yeah. and kind of get it get it to catch on. But you have a very interesting story about sort of the um, uh, the genesis of of current affairs. And and I think you also sort of have your finger on sort of this idea of where sort of leftist um, journalism and leftist publishing can go. And I'm yeah. just sort of interested in that story. And I think maybe. Um, Jordan might even have some questions about it, but it, yeah. It, oh sure, yeah, absolutely. You, can you uh, can you sort of describe your how you came to, yeah. how you came to this? So so you know, for people who don't know, we are a print magazine that publishes uh, once every two months, and also do a lot of web stuff, and we do a podcast and some video content as well. Um, we started in 2015 uh, through a crowdfunding campaign. We raised sixteen thousand dollars on Kickstarter, and that enabled us to start putting out print magazines. Now. I started current affairs because, in part because, you know, every, everyone said print media is impossible in 2015. It's dying. It's over. You, you can't make money on it. Um, all of the print publications are shutting down. But I knew that wasn't true because Jacobin Magazine exists. And five years previous, um, they had founded a print magazine. Boskers and Cara was kind enough to give me some advice on, on how to do it. And... Um, if you actually look at the economics of it, they they they're not as they're bad. If you're a, a Condé Nast publication, like if you're the old kind of magazine that has like a hundred staff and uh, and you're huge and you're just sort of completely overextended, that's that's hard to make it work. And if you're reliant on advertising revenue instead of subscription revenue, which a lot of them were, but 
if you rely on subscription revenue, um, as Jagaman does and as we do, um, the model is actually pretty workable. I mean, we charge quite a lot. It's $60 a year for a print subscription. But that means that with only a small number of subscribers, we can afford to pay a small staff. And what's exciting is that it means that more it, it's more economical now than it has been for a long time to put together a left media organization that survives. I mean, crowdfunding is very, very useful. If you had, and and the internet is, is really useful, right? Because if you'd tried to put together a print magazine in 1992, you would have needed half a million dollars because the only way in 1992 that you can get people to find out about your magazine is by doing a national mailing campaign and printing is really, really expensive back then. And you have to get in on the newsstands. Um, but now you can build up very, very slowly, which is what we're doing. We're still small, but we build up slowly. Um, and so the really exciting thing has been that even though we are a small institution, we have two full-time staff and two part-time staff, um, uh, plus a small editorial board. And e even though we are small, we are sustainable. And we are not funded by advertisers. We have no advertisers. We have no investors. So we have no private, equi private equity firms telling us what to do. Uh, we are accountable entirely to our readers. And that gives us incredible, incredible freedom. Um, and so if you want to be a left media... Now, I'm, I'm, I don't mean to um, um, uh, downplay the difficulties of making something like this work. Um, it is still very, very hard to build a media institution that survives, I never leave my office, right? I'm just writing all the time. One of the reasons that I'm so prolific is because it's necessary in order to keep the magazine afloat. Um, and I've typically written half the content for the magazine because it's necessary. But um, uh, you can make it work. And that makes me think that sort of audience-funded models for left journalism and uh, other forms of left content, um, they... they do have a future. Hey, Nathan, this is Jordan. So, Hey, Jordan. Hey, so with this um, uh, socialist model uh, for magazine publication, um, I'm cer certain there are probably a lot of folks who are wondering, um, you know, how you've made it work. Uh, you know, what would you say then to, uh, you know, an individual or group of individuals who would want to start up their own magazine like you did? Yeah, sure. Um, the first thing is that you have to keep your costs as low as possible, right? Because the, your primary consideration has to be, how am I going to survive, right? And the worst thing that could happen is that you, that you it, it fails. So it's better to be small and survive than to grow large and then overextend yourself and have it fail. So what we've done is we have chosen not to get loans, for example, um, chosen not to hire people on the hope that we grow more, um, just do what we know we can do. And even though, like, maybe there, if we if we taken say a small business loan and we'd hired some staff, maybe we could have gotten up to ten thousand. So we're now about right now we're about five thousand subscribers in print. But if you think about it, five thousand subscribers paying sixty dollars a year—that's a lot of money. Um, and so you 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 build very very slowly, and you and you don't take risks, and you do what you can afford to do. And I think that. And it gives you a sense of comfort, which is I may not be huge and I may have a very limited audience, um, but I'm not afraid this is going to go under. And I think that makes me feel very comfortable every day as I as I come into work. And I know that even though we're a niche publication, but you also have to have the second thing is, you know, have confidence and take a long term view of things, because in 2015, you know, we started with 200 subscribers. Well, now we're at 5,000. That's, you know, that's it takes years to build up. But now we're at 5,000. You know, in a few years, we'll be at 10,000. A few more years, maybe we'll be at 20, 50, 100. Who knows? We don't know. Um, but what we do see is that the trend is consistently up and up and up and up and up um, in a way that makes me feel good. 
and and so uh yeah take the take the long view be careful and cautious and 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 slow and of course your first worry is always about like how do i feed myself um but i think you can do it right i think one of the things that i have focused on though is make sure you give people really really good stuff that they will want they will want to pay money for think constantly about quality think you know think about your audience i mean think like a business person in some sense but you know think about you know what would people actually like to read what will give them great satisfaction um uh what will make them trust me enough to give me their money uh you know and before this uh uh, this interview, I think uh, your uh, our only interaction was you posted a uh, query on the Twitter asking uh, what is a socialist book that needs to be written that hadn't been written yet, and then I replied something to the extent of a popular history of the radical press, um, and you replied something along the lines of, "Oh, I like this," and <clears throat> yes, and uh, and I actually checked that book out from the library um, not that long ago. Something pretty close. It's called uh, "Black, White, and Red All Over" by uh, Linda Lumsden, and. Huh. Uh, and, and it's just interesting because the um, focusing on content and uh, subscribers and worrying if you're going to eat or not really does seem like pretty much par for the course for the history of radical oh, yeah. publication. And the other thing that strikes me is um, after reading that and talking to reading this and talking to you is that in the U.S., uh, socialists as kind of a historically disparate group of, uh, in, of people. Um, have relied on a socialist press um, to, to like form kind of a sense of uh, community and like national and international community in like an otherwise um, hostile environment. Uh, how do you do you see yourself, um, uh, you know, con continuing in that tradition and kind of like building that sense of community? Yeah, I think it's so important, actually. And a big part of what we try to do is give people it, it, there's almost like a self-help aspect to what we do, which is like part of it is think telling showing people that they're not alone um, because you know if you're historically if you've been a socialist in many parts of the country, you've lived a pretty lonely life. You're surrounded by people who don't see the world the same way you do. as I mentioned at the beginning, to be a socialist means to look at things in your day-to-day -day life and think, this is profoundly wrong. Um, there's something very troubling here. And to feel crazy. You feel crazy a lot of the time because you're looking at things that other people think are fine and going, this isn't fine, this isn't normal. And um, it really can be a very depressing experience. And so I think a lot of what we do as a magazine is to provide a sense of comfort and a feeling of solidarity and say to people, um, you aren't alone, you're correct, <laughs> you, 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 you do in fact see something that is worth seeing, you're not nuts. Um, and the reactions from people that we've gotten have been very positive. Um, but there's another, I mean, there are sort of multiple functions to what we do. So one, one function is to sort of... Uh, uh, comfort and cheer on people who are already on the left. Um, but then, and again, if you want to think about this from a building media institutions that thrive perspective, we also write for people who are not already leftists. And I think a lot about, well, how do I draw them in, right? So half of what we do is saying, yes, you're right about these things. Um, you know, and I think I, th I think Jacobin focuses more on a left audience th than than we do. Even um, they explicitly sort of pitch themselves uh, towards a left audience. I do part of my work in in that way, but I I also do kind of well. How do I take someone who is left curious or who isn't even curious, and how do I get that person to want to listen just through putting out articles that are interesting? And where you think, well, I, I didn't know that. I wanted to know that. And I didn't know I wanted to know that. And so I think the socialist press, and this is where I would sort of depart from the historical socialist press, which I think has, you know, I, I don't like to use the, the, the phrase preach to the choir because I think it's derogatory. And, and I think it's actually very valuable to help to, to build, as you say, a community. Um, but, you know, how do we have something that has appeal beyond people who already agree with it is a question that I also ask every day. Uh, what strikes me when you say that is the uh, article you wrote not that long ago about the uh, your conversation with a conservative student explaining socialism. Oh, yeah. That'd be right up that alley, right? Yes. Yeah. Because that was an email I got from a student at the University of Connecticut 
who said, I'm a conservative, even the young Americans for liberty or freedom or something. And, uh, you know, I have all these basic questions about socialism. And I thought, at first I thought he was going to send me a few questions. Then he sent me like 20 questions, a ton of questions. Um, but I thought, well, actually, this is good because probably a lot of people have these questions. These are all the things he wants to know. So, and, you know, and also when you write this way, you become a smarter person because it forces you to think, well, how can I explain my beliefs in ways that are going to be persuasive, not just to people who are already inclined to be persuaded by them, but people who are distinctly disinclined to be persuaded by them? And that's why I sort of wrote that out in a way that I think I think probably a lot of people who um, might be skeptical of socialism might pick that up and go, oh, okay, it makes it makes a little bit more sense to me now, and it's not as unreasonable as I suspected. Yeah, I, I actually think about that kind of thing all the time, and I think you're exactly right. I, I have a friend of mine who uh, is a little bit older than me. He's in his 50s. He, he's a public school teacher. He's also, uh, he's also an artist. Um, he, you know, he, he makes uh, all kinds of different uh, sort of visual art, but he also does construction. He, he built his own boat. Uh, he is into, uh, a lot of, uh, he's into different kinds of music and, and most of it's sort of, of, a you know, like, like reggae music. That's sort of like liberation, you know, Caribbean liberation music. Yeah. And about um, two months ago, uh, I was speaking to him and he was like, yeah, you know, I got this package to my mom's apartment. I don't know why I, I got this thing. And so she said, come over and get this. I don't know why I would get it there. And I went, and it was a, it was a Bernie Sanders 2020 t-shirt. And I was like, hey, cool, man. That's, that's great. And he was like, yeah, but I mean, he's a socialist. I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, buddy, come on. And, I, and when you were describing sort of your, like the person that you're sort of trying to think about when you're, pro yeah. when you're providing sort of stories and, and theory and sort of context for people, I think about him because I'm like, you're a, you're a, you're an open-minded, uh, yeah. sort of uh, empathetic person who does see this, uh, you know, how you describe the world and 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 sort of the ethic of it when you defined it in the beginning, yeah. and and you're someone who is a public school teacher who's in a union, and like I'm like that's you, man. We're we're we're, yeah. we're doing it. We're we're all doing it. So you had to sort of like yeah. kind of prove to people that. Like we're out here, and it means something different than maybe you think it means. There's more of us than you think. Um, it's it's actually a thing. It's not just like a word people use. Um, so mm -hmm. yeah, when you were describing that, it made me think of my friend. <laughs> That's funny. I think yeah. I, I mean, I I have those kinds of people in mind with this with this new book, Why You Should Be a Socialist, um, because I think there are lots of people who have the kind of the the ethic and the basic way of looking at the world, um, but who don't use the word and because and it's perfectly understandable, right? Considering that everyone has spent their entire lives being uh, told that that a socialist is a is a crazy person who believes that uh, you know who is basically Pol Pot uh, or Joseph Stalin. And so I, I mean, I wanted to write the thing, and and, and you know, I've been kind of. I, I, doubtful before about whether the even reclaiming the word was necessary right um is it a word that had been too tired because i mean words you can find new words for stuff do you need do you need this word socialist or can you just have the the political program and try and sell it as something else but i actually was very persuaded by the fact that bernie sanders ran as a socialist in 2016 and it didn't seem to hurt him very much. In fact, it felt very useful as a way of classifying a particular kind of set of instincts. And I think actually it, it can be a very clarifying word um, in a way that I don't think there's anything else that will do it. So I actually have come to, around to the position that rallying under this word is a useful way to distinguish a certain set of people who hold a certain set of views um, and uh, from everyone else. And that when Bernie said, so it's better than progressive or even left, because everyone's going to say they're a progressive. Pete Buttigieg says he's a progressive, <laughs> right? Yeah. But he's not going to say he's a socialist, is he? So, like... It does distinguish you. It does set you apart. It does say, look, we're the socialists. We're not just adopting some wishy-washy label. There is a distinction, and this is the distinction. Yeah, it draws a distinction between, the, between you know, this and that, as you said. Um, you know, it also, if put in the right context, 
you know, still can be valid. I know uh, Carl and I were lucky enough uh, to go to D.C. Uh, maybe six months ago uh, when Bernie gave his speech at George Washington about socialism. Um, you know, it was in a little theater, about 400 people. And what he really did was tie it to the context of FDR, similar to what Harvey J.K. would do and say, you know, there's there's a tradition of this already. Like, you don't have to be scared of it because we're like, uh, you know, trade unionists and local, you know, the TVA, you know, making sure that local rural people got electricity. Um, you know, it's like you can draw parallels and 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 really say we don't have to run away from this. There's actually a tradition that people sort of like and they just sort of forget what it is. Well, one of the things that I talk about in the book, I have a whole chapter on the the proud tradition of socialists, of people who have rallied under that banner, right? And in fact, the, if you want to ask the question, well, what does socialism look like, or isn't socialism just authoritarian Marx-derived, Marxist-Leninist regimes, um, the answer is no. In fact, there's a very long uh, set of the historical figures who have, who are really truly admirable, who have used this word to describe their beliefs. And I cite people like Martin Luther King, Helen Keller, Albert Einstein, Bertrand Russell, you know, all sorts of people, Emma Goldman, you know, I, all people who have not been authoritarians, who've been anti-authoritarian, um, but who have used this word because they it, it captures something very, very important about their view of their fellow human beings and their aspirations for human society. And so when you use this term and you apply it to yourself, you are, by choice, placing yourself in that tradition with those great people and, and, and saying that you share the aspirations that they had. And so I don't think it's something to be ashamed of. I don't think it's something that is needs to be explained away or run away from. I think we can be very, very proud of being socialists because of the, the now century and a half of people who have used this term, who have been good people, who have been some of the best people, who have really, really fought very, very hard to make other people's lives better, and in many cases, um, succeeded. Um, they got a lot done. I talk about the Socialist Party of the early 1900s in the United States, where, you know, they pushed uh, the old age pensions and they pushed workplace safety regulations and these things that now seem to us like wishy-washy, just liberal liberal regulation, right? This is just, oh, well, just uh, everyone believes in those things. Well, you go, well, people didn't then. <laughs> you know, back then they were pushing for things that were really, really radical. Um, and then the National Health Service in England was gotten done by a socialist government. The Labour Party was socialist. And, um, and they, they brought that country an institution that today is the most beloved institution in the country because it means that everyone gets, everyone gets free healthcare. You can go to the doctor and you don't have to pay. And it is a radical, radical thing compared to what uh, happened for hundreds of years of human history, right? Thousands of years. It's, it's an incredible thing. And it was brought to us by socialism. So when we say, oh, socialism, what does that mean in practice? Oh, Venezuela, Venezuela. No, look at the actual socialists in your country and in other, country who, in other countries who have fought for things and look at the things that they gotten done and given you yeah there's a whole there's a whole history there that we can uh we can we can point to when we go and do the work that we're doing today and uh i i before we go i hope you have a few minutes that you can talk politics a little bit with us um the first thing i want to do is uh clue you in uh on a little uh a little piece of news from our our little shire here up in the mid-Atlantic, the Luxembourg of the, the Luxembourg of the mid-Atlantic. Um, we, uh, we are going to, uh, challenge our conservative. Oh, you're in Delaware. Sorry. Yes. <laughs> that's, ah, okay. That's why I call it the, <laughs> the Luxembourg Luxembourg of the mid-Atlantic. Yeah. We're, uh, we're a, uh, we're a little tax haven here. Um, well, I think current affairs is incorporated in Delaware. Oh, well, of course. <laughs> I mean, of course. Um, but, uh, yeah, we have, uh, a lot of, uh, monstrous uh, politicians here. Most of them are conservative Democrats. One of them is uh, Chris Coons, who is a very conservative Democrat in the Senate right now. And uh, we just kicked off a campaign earlier this week to uh, to primary him on the Bernie program. That's awesome. Yeah, so Jessica uh, Skarain, 
uh, will be primarying uh, Chris Coons here. Um, yeah, so uh, I think you may remember two years ago uh, we had a progressive primary challenger for uh, Tom Carper, Carrie Harris, and yeah. uh, she did it, she did incredibly well. She had the backing of Justice Democrats, and while she didn't while she didn't win, we were able to build up uh, a really strong group of organizers and campaigners uh, that are now going to take another crack um, at the establishment. So, well, just going to keep you keep, know who she did. Yeah, you know who she did not have the backing of was the human rights campaign, even though she's a queer woman of color. And I wrote an article about this, actually, about the fact that even though Tom Carper was one of the last Democrats to sign on to same-sex marriage, um, the human rights campaign decided to in endorse him over her. And I was pretty outraged about that. So I remember writing about, about this uh this race, because, uh, you know, some of the establishment Democrat, Democratic nonprofits, you know, have, have really put uh, party before principle. <laughs> yeah, we see that a lot here, especially because we're sort of an inch, insular sort of small little, basically like a little tax haven here. So there's, you know, as long as you, you know, the 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 loyalty to sort of the party machine is is. Uh, is I mean I'm sure it's the same everywhere, but here it's even more tight because you you know the people who are doing it. You know it's not it's not out of your not out of your purview. You just see these deals being cut, and it's um it's very troubling. And you it's your fault that the world has Joe Biden. Uh, I look, you're not wrong. <laughs> I mean I look. One of the reasons I'm doing this podcast is because I feel shame, and I'm trying to <laughs> fucking I'm trying to you know give something back to the world because. It really, it is our fault. You're not wrong. <laughs> uh, so, uh, but you've been stuck with him for a long time, too, so you have suffered. Yes, we have. Uh, he's been bad for a long time, but again, because he, um, the, I mean, the reason he's been like that for a long time is because a small group of people here wield a lot of power, and uh, it's in their interest to make sure things keep going sort of the way that they're going. I mean, it's just like that everywhere. I, I, I'm I'm really moved because one of the things that um, one of the the arguments that you use about socialism, just when you're defining it and you're sort of laying out sort of that ethical sort of like worldview and saying, you know, this is how we see the world is is in schools and I and in education, and I try to use that here because we have a huge problem because we're so small and because we have a really, um, you know, consolidated group of powerful elites. It's all capital. You know, it's incorporated money. It's LLCs and and uh, chancery courts. You know, it's like a little, you know, it's like a little Cayman Islands here. You know, all of those people who are affiliated with all of that send their children to private schools. And so the public schools for working people here are, I mean, they're not good. Uh, and it's And it's really a function of of capital and uh that's like you know you, you you've you've made that very clear in sort of defining terms you know you see the world in this way the world should not be this way you know no child should they should everybody we have the resources we have the resources here we have an abundance every child has the right to go to a school like that they should everybody should be you know educated like that but you know it's it just does not happen it doesn't happen no, it's it, it's true. I mean, education is actually one of the very obvious ways. I mean, it's one of the places where you really see the uh, how insincere the rhetoric about equal opportunity is, because both conservatives and liberals will say, "Well, we don't believe in equal outcome. We believe in equal opportunity." But if you believed in equal opportunity, they don't accept just how radical equal opportunity would be. First off, I mean, you could never really have equal opportunity because, you know, everything is passed down, right? Connections are passed down. Uh, you, you can't, it, it's almost impossible. But, so it's an incoherent concept. But, to the extent that you took it seriously, you tried to do it, well, the first thing you'd have is no private schools because the very existence of private school is a denial of equal opportunity unless everyone is able to go to them, um, which they're not. So, I mean, unless you make sure that every single person has the equal opportunity to go to the best possible school, um, then you don't have it and you don't take it seriously. 
Um, and so, you know, education, no, nobody really, it, it shows you, right? Everyone, everyone accepts that uh, there are radical differences in the kinds of schools that people get, and they're fine with it. Um, and you know, one of the things that we socialists say and that distinguish us is that we look at these things and we say, excuse me, um, th this isn't acceptable. We're not going to put up with it. Um, you know, every child not just deserves an education, not just deserves a good education, but because they're children and they haven't done anything to earn or not earn, everyone deserves the same. Everyone deserves the best. You know, there's the expression, nothing is too good for the working class. And I think that we take that very seriously. We say, look, if there is a private school that has something, then every single child in the world, not just in this country, every single child in the world deserves that thing. Um, and it makes socialists very radical, but it also means that we're the only ones who take very basic principles of morality seriously. Yes, absolutely. And uh, at, at uh, Jess's campaign kickoff, uh, we were talking about how when you take those things seriously and you can build solidarity, it becomes sort of a, it, be, it, 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 it almost makes organizing more fluid because you're making the same argument, whether you're, whether you're at a state level, uh, whether you're at a, a, you know, maybe a city level, if, if, if you're couching your arguments in this kind of story and you're saying this is our program and this is our philosophy uh, and you're not talking about trying to tweak this or that sort of esoteric thing, I, I think it's a clearer political message. And it's a, well, it's a righteous political message if, as far as I'm concerned. But yeah, but it's a clear political message. And I think, um, you know, I, I think it's a winner. Can I say? Well, I agree with you. And best of luck, um, you know, on the, on the campaign there. I'm, I'm really excited. It's, it's amazing that we've got, I mean, one thing that is really nice about living here in 2019 is that, you know, for a long time, the left really struggled and it was very lonely. And now every day I am discovering amazing, smart, committed radicals around the country who are, who become very serious about taking power and about doing things that will help people. And it's just, it's tremendous, right? I mean, you know, I, I don't mean to uh, uh, suggest that the campaign there isn't unique, but it's one, it is one of many, right? No, absolutely. And, it's, uh, a it's a movement. It's, it's a, a mo movement. It's a movement of solidarity. Yeah, you know, there's no, uh, you know, there's no uh, egos or anything. We're all, we're all together. Right. We're all doing it together. It's, it, there's this incredible feeling of unity that we haven't had for a very, very long time. It used to be that intra-left bickering was just miserable. And I have this very strong sense, and I got it in the D at the DSA convention too, where it's like even our disagreements are done in a comradely fashion, and we it feels, it feels like the beginning of something. It really does feel as if there is an actual movement. For a long time, we just had to pretend that there was a movement, and we had to say we had a movement, even though we knew we didn't. But now we actually do. We're electing people to office, right? We're throwing out people who aren't doing anything or who are useless, and, you know, and we've, we've got this whole new generation of really, really... Uh, um, intelligent and uh, and committed radicals, and uh, it's thrilling. Hell yeah. Nathan J. Robinson, thank you very much. Uh, I want everybody to uh, buy the book. That's what we always say. So do I. Buy the book, yes. everyone. We're going to have it in the show notes. <laughs> it's out in time for Christmas, for Hanukkah, for the New Year's season. You can, you can, <laughs> you can give that book, and you can explain to your, your family why you should be a socialist. Well, my hope is that this is going to be the sort of holiday gift for reactionary relatives. Because, <laughs> like, it, <laughs> because it's funny. Like, it's funny to give them this book. Yeah, it is. And I, I can I guarantee you I will be giving this book to a few reactionary relatives. Oh, good. For, absolutely. <laughs> uh, so, you know, you're you're there. Uh, you're there right in the thick of it in, in New Orleans. It, uh, as you know, I, I, you know, my wife and I came and, and met you at the office. I think you have, you have a you've expanded since we've been there. You oh, we've met. Yes, I. Yeah, we were <laughs> I didn't in. Realize you. Were. We were in. You had just uh, taken a bunch of art, and you had bought. You had told us that you were able to buy like lots of like junk drawers, and so you had all of this ah, different yes, stuff yes. that you had put together in your office. Yeah, for the table of contents. Correct. Yeah. Exactly. But you. But um. But New Orleans is um. 
in my opinion, the greatest city in the United States. So what are you doing tonight? Are you going to go to Snug Harbor? Are you going to go, uh, you're going <laughs> to go uptown to Maple Leaf. I mean, what are you, what no. are you doing well, tonight? You know, I'm no, oh my God, no, I don't. I, I told you, I don't leave the office. I, um, you know, well, I'm a political columnist for the guardian and they have demanded that I watch the debate tonight. So, because they have this absurd belief that the debates are interesting and that people should write about them and discuss them. That's so, that sounds so, that sounds like a bunch of nonsense. I I totally disagree with them on this, but they pay me money, and so when when my editor says, "Hey, there's a debate. Would you mind covering it for us?" I have to sit here and I have to watch another one of these. Goddamn. Anyway, well, so that's what I'm going to be doing, Nathan. If I could suggest something, so our podcast, okay. our podcast, sort of is like a Gonzo sort of, uh, you know, Hunter S. Thompson inspired thing. So what I would recommend. Uh, is Acid. going somewhere, uh, uh, drinking heavily, uh, possibly doing a drug of choice, whatever. I'm not telling you. I'm just saying you could okay. possibly do that. And then watch the um, the debate out in New Orleans like that, and then just type the, the Guardian uh, thing in like a text message. <laughs> and that would be like new gonzo, new journalism shit. Okay. I'll give it a, I mean, I'd like to keep my job. Oh, okay. you, know, um, you know what? No, you, so, you're actually, you make a good point. <laughs> but if I ever get tired of it, that will be my last column. <laughs> Nathan, th th thank you for doing this. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks, Rob. And I will. Carl, Jordan. <laughs> and I will, uh, I will uh, send you probably, uh, uh, oh, actually, you have my email. So if you, do you think that audio file you can just shoot to me or how, do you want to? I'm going to send it to you as soon as I get off this. Ah, no worries. Thank you very much, Nathan. I appreciate it. And uh, hopefully we'll speak again soon. Uh, cheers. Cheers.